Chapter Thirteen, Part One of How I Found Livingstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anton Epp. How I Found Livingstone: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, including Four Months' Residence with Doctor Livingstone, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Thirteen, Part One. Our cruise on the Lake Tanganyika, exploration of the north end of the lake, the Rusizi is discovered to enter into the lake, return to Ujiji. Quote, I distinctly deny that any misleading by my instructions from the Royal Geographical Society as to the position of the White Nile made me unconscious of the vast importance of ascertaining the direction of the Rusizi River. The fact is, we did our best to reach it, and we failed. End quote. Burton's Zanzibar. Quote, the universal testimony of the natives to the Rusizi River being an influent is the most conclusive argument that it does run out of the lake. End quote. Specca. Quote, I therefore claim for the Lake Tanganyika the honor of being the southernmost reservoir of the Nile until some more positive evidence by actual observation shall otherwise determine it. End quote. Findlay, R. G. S. Had Livingston and myself, after making up our minds to visit the northern head of the Lake Tanganyika, been compelled by the absurd demands or fears of a crew of Wajiji to return to Unyamjambe without having resolved the problem of the Rusizi River, we had surely deserved to be greeted by everybody at home with a universal giggling and cackling. But Captain Burton's failure to settle it by engaging Wajiji and that ridiculous savage chief, Kenena, had warned us of the negative assistance we could expect from such people for the solution of a geographical problem. We had good enough sailors with us, who were entirely under our commands. Could we but procure the loan of a canoe, we thought all might be well. Upon application to Said bin Majid, he at once generously permitted us to use his canoe for any service for which we might require it. After engaging two Wajiji guides at two dotai each, we prepared to sail from the port of Ujiji in about a week or so after my entrance into Ujiji. I have already stated how it was that the doctor and I undertook the exploration of the northern half of the Tanganyika and the river Rusizi, about which so much had been said and written. Before embarking on this enterprise, Dr. Livingston had not definitely made up his mind which course he should take, as his position was truly deplorable. His servants consisted of Susi, Chumha, Hamyoda, Gardner, and Halama, the female cook and wife of Hamoida. To these was added Kaif Halek, the man whom I compelled to follow me from Unyamyambe to deliver the Livingston letters to his master. Whither could Dr. Livingston march with these few men and the few tablecloths and beads that remained to him from the store squandered by the imbecile sheriff? This was a puzzling question. Had Dr. Livingston been in good health, his usual hardihood and indomitable spirit had answered it in a summary way. He might have borrowed some cloth from Said bin Majid at an exorbitant price, sufficient to bring him to Unyamjambe and the sea coast. But how long would he have been compelled to sit down at Ujiji, waiting and waiting for the goods that were said to be at Unyamjambe, a prey to high expectations, hoping day after day that the war would end, hoping week after week to hear that his goods were coming? Who knows how long his weak health had borne up against the several disappointments to which he would be subjected. 
though it was with all due deference to dr livingstone's vast experience as a traveller i made bold to suggest the following courses to him either of which he could adopt first to go home and take the rest he so well deserved and as he appeared then to be so much in need of second to proceed to unyamyambe receive his goods and enlist pagazis sufficient to enable him to travel anywhere either to manyuma or rua and settle the nile problem which he said he was in a fair way of doing third to proceed to unyamyambe receive his caravan enlist men and try to join sir samuel baker either by going to maunza and sailing through ukerawi or victoria nyanza in my boats which i should put up to matisa's place at uganda thus passing by mirambo and suraru of usui who would rob him if he took the usual caravan road to uganda thence from matisa to kamrasi king of uyoro where he would of course hear of the great white man who is said to be with a large force of men of gondokoro fourth to proceed to unyanyabe receive his caravan enlist men and return to unjiji and back to manyuma by way of uguha fifth to proceed by way of the rusizi through ruanda and so on to itara unyoro and baker for either course whichever he thought most expedient i and my men would assist him as escort and carriers to the best of our ability if he should elect to go home i informed him that i should be proud to escort him and consider myself subject to his commands travelling only when he desired and camping only when he gave the word sixth the last course which i suggested to him was to permit me to escort him to unyanyembe there he could receive his own goods and where i could deliver up to him a large supply of first-class cloth and beads guns and ammunition cooking utensils clothing boats tents etc and where he could rest in a comfortable house while i would hurry down to the coast organize a new expedition composed of fifty or sixty faithful men well armed by whom i could send an additional supply of needful luxuries in the shape of creature comforts after long consideration he resolved to adopt the last course as it appeared to him to be the most feasible one and the best though he did not hesitate to comment upon the unaccountable apathy of his agent at zanzibar which had caused him so much trouble and vexation and weary marching of hundreds of miles our ship though nothing more than a cranky canoe hollowed out of a noble umvuli tree of ungoma was an african argo bound on a nobler enterprise than its famous gratian prototype we were bound upon no mercenary errand after no golden fleece but perhaps to discover a highway for commerce which should bring the ships of the nile up to ujiji usowa and the far marungo we did not know what we might discover on our voyage to the northern head of the tanganyika we supposed that we should find the rusizi to be an effluent of the tanganyika flowing down to the albert or the victoria nyanza we were told by natives and arabs that the rusizi ran out of the lake Said bin Majid had stated that his canoe would carry twenty-five men and three thousand five hundred pounds of ivory. Acting upon this information, we embarked twenty-five men, several of whom had stored away bags of salt for the purposes of trade with the natives. But upon pushing off from the shore near Ujiji, we discovered that the boat was too heavily laden, and was down to the gunwale. Returning inshore, we disembarked six men and unloaded the bags of salt, which left us with sixteen rowers, Salim, Farajij, the cook, and the two Wajiji guides. Having thus properly trimmed our boat, we again pushed off, and steered her head for Bangui Island, 
which was distant four or five miles from the bunder of Ujiji. While passing this island, the guides informed us that the Arabs and Wajiji took shelter on it during an incursion of the Watuta, which took place some years ago when they came and invaded Ujiji, and massacred several of the inhabitants. Those who took refuge on the island were the only persons who escaped the fire and sword with which the Watuta had visited Ujiji. After passing the island and following the various bends and indentations of the shore, we came in sight of the magnificent Bay of Kigoma, which strikes one at once as being an excellent harbour from the variable winds which blow over the Tanganyika. About ten a.m. we drew in towards the village of Kigoma, as the east wind was then rising and threatened to drive us to sea. With those travelling parties who were not in much hurry, Kigoma is always the first port for canoes bound north from Ujiji. The next morning at dawn we struck tent, stowed baggage, cooked and drank coffee, and set off northward again. The lake was calm. Its waters of a dark green colour reflected the serene blue sky above. The hippopotami came up to breathe in alarmingly close proximity to our canoe, and then plunged their heads again, as if they were playing hide-and-seek with us. Arriving opposite the high-wooded hills of Bemba, and being a mile from shore, we thought it a good opportunity to sound the depth of the water, whose colour seemed to indicate great depth. We found thirty-five fathoms at this place. Our canoeing of this day was made close inshore, with a range of hills, beautifully wooded and clothed with green grass, sloping abruptly, almost precipitously, into the depths of the fresh-water sea, towering immediately above us, and as we rounded the several capes or points, roused high expectation of some new wonder, or some exquisite picture being revealed as the deep folds disclosed themselves to us. Nor were we disappointed. The wooded hills, with a wealth of boscage of beautiful trees, many of which were in bloom, and crowned with floral glory, exhaling an indescribably sweet fragrance, lifting their heads in varied contour, one pyramidal, another a truncated cone, one table-topped, another ridgy, like the steep roof of a church, one a glorious heave with an even outline, another jagged and savage, interested us considerably, and the pretty pictures, exquisitely pretty, at the head of the several bays evoked many an exclamation of admiration. It was the most natural thing in the world that I should feel deepest admiration for these successive pictures of quiet, scenic beauty, but the doctor had quite as much to say about them as I had myself, though as one might imagine, satiated with pictures of this kind, far more beautiful, far more wonderful, he should long ago have expended all his powers of admiring scenes in nature. From Bagamoyo to Ujiji I had seen nothing to compare to them. None of these fishing settlements, under the shade of a grove of palms and plantations, banyans and mimosa, with cassava gardens in the right and left of palmy forests, and patches of luxuriant grain looking down upon a quiet bay whose calm waters at the early morn reflected the beauties of the hills which sheltered them from the rough and boisterous tempest that so often blew without. The fishermen evidently think themselves comfortably situated. The lake affords them all the fish they require, more than enough to eat, and the industrious a great deal to sell. The steep slopes of the hills, cultivated by the housewives, contribute plenty of grain, such as doura and Indian corn, besides cassava, groundnuts or peanuts, and sweet potatoes. The palm trees afford oil, and the plantains an abundance of delicious fruit. The ravines and deep gullies supply them with the tall, shapely trees from which they cut out their canoes. Nature has supplied them bountifully with all that a man's heart or stomach can desire. 
it is while looking at what seems both externally and internally complete and perfect happiness that the thought occurs how must these people sigh when driven across the dreary wilderness that intervenes between the lake country and the sea coast for such homes as these those unfortunates who bought by the arabs for a couple of dodi are taken away to zanzibar to pick clothes or to do hamal work as we drew near Niosanga, our second camp, the comparison between the noble array of picturesque hills and receding coves, with their pastoral and agricultural scenes, and the shores of old Pontus, was very great. A few minutes before we hauled our canoe ashore, two little incidents occurred. I shot an enormous dog-faced monkey, which measured from nose to end of tail four feet nine inches. The face was eight and a half inches long. Its body weighed about one hundred pounds. It had no mane or tuft at the end of the tail, but the body was covered with long, wiry hair. Numbers of these specimens were seen, as well as of the active cat-headed and longer-tailed smaller ones. The other was in sight of a large lizard, about two foot six inches long, which waddled into cover before we had well noticed it. The doctor thought it to be the Monitor terrestris. We encamped under a banyan tree. Our surroundings were the now light gray waters of the Tanganyika an amphitheatral range of hills and the valley of Niasanga, situated at the mouth of the rivulet Niasanga, with its grove of palms, thicket of plantains, and plots of grain and cassava fields. Near our tent were about half a dozen canoes, large and small, belonging to the villagers. Our tent door fronted the glorious expanse of fresh water, inviting the breeze, and the views of distant Ugoma and Unkaramba, and the island of Muzimu, whose ridges appeared of a deep blue color. At our feet were the clean and well-washed pebbles, borne upward into tiny lines and heaps by the restless surf. A search amongst these would reveal to us the material of the mountain heaps, which rose behind us and to our right and left. There was schist, conglomerate sandstone, a hard white clay, an ochreish clay containing much iron, polished quartz, etc. Looking out of our tent, we could see a line on each side of us of thick, tall reeds, which formed something like a hedge between the beach and the cultivated area around Niasanga. Among birds seen here, the most noted were the merry wagtails, which are regarded as good omens and the messengers of peace by the natives, and any harm done to them is quickly resented, and is finable. Except to the mischievously inclined, they offer no inducement to commit violence. On landing they flew to meet us, balancing themselves in the air in front, within easy reach of our hands. The other birds were crows, turtle-doves, fish-hawks, kingfishers, ibis nigra and ibis religiosa, flocks of wide birds geese, darters, paddy-birds, kites, and eagles. At this place the doctor suffered from dysentery. It is his only weak point, he says, and, as I afterwards found, it is a frequent complaint with him. Whatever disturbed his mind, or any irregularity in eating, was sure to end in an attack of dysentery, which had lately become of a chronic character." The third day of our journey on the Tanganyika brought us to Zassi River and village, after a four hours' pull. Along the line of road the mountains rose two thousand and two thousand five hundred feet above the waters of the lake. I imagined the scenery getting more picturesque and animated at every step, and though it is far lovelier than anything seen near Lake George or on the Hudson. The cosy nooks at the head of the many small bays constitute most admirable pictures, filled in as they were with the ever-beautiful feathery palms, and broad green plantain fronds. These nooks have all been taken possession of by fishermen, and their conically beehive-shaped huts always peep from under the frondage. The shores are thus extremely populous, 
Every terrace, small plateau, and bit of level ground is occupied. Sassi is easily known by a group of conical hills which raise nearby, and are called Kirasa. Opposite to these, at a distance of about a mile from shore, we sounded and obtained thirty-five fathoms, as on the previous day. Getting out a mile further, I let go the whole length of my line, one hundred and fifteen fathoms, and obtained no bottom. In drawing it up again, the line parted, and I lost the lead, with three-fourths of the line. The doctor stated, apropos of this, that he had sounded opposite the lofty Kabogo, south of Ujiji, and obtained the great depth of three hundred fathoms. He had also lost his lead in one hundred fathoms of his line, but he had nearly nine hundred fathoms left, and this was in the canoes. We hope to use this long-sounding line in going across from the eastern to the western shore. On the fourth day we arrived in Yabigma, a sandy island in Urundi. We had passed the boundary line between Ujiji and Urundi, half an hour before arriving at Nyambigma. The Mshala River is considered by both nations to be the proper divisional line, though there are parties of Warundi who have emigrated beyond the frontier into Ujiji. For instance, the Mutwari and villagers of the populous Kagunga, distant an hour north from Zasi. There are also several small parties of Wajiji who have taken advantage of the fine lands in the deltas of the Kasokwi, Namusinga, and Lauba rivers, the first two of which enter the Tanganyika in this bay, near the head of which Nyabigma is situated. From Nyabigma, a pretty good view of the deep curve in the great mountain range which stretches from Cape Kazinga and terminates at Cape Kasofu may be obtained, a distance of twenty or twenty-five miles. It is a most imposing scene, this great humpy ridgy and irregular line of mountains. Deep ravines and chasms afford outlets to the numerous streams and rivers which take their rise in the background. The pale fleecy ether almost always shrouds its summit. From its base extends a broad alluvial plain, rich beyond description, teeming with palms and plantains, and umbrageous trees. Villages are seen in clusters everywhere. Into this alluvial plain run the Luaba or Ruaba River, on the north side of the Cape Ketunda, and the Kasoqui, Namsunga, and Mshala rivers on the south side of the Cape. All the deltas of rivers emptying into the Tanganyika are hedged in on all sides with a thick growth of mateta, a gigantic species of grass, and papyrus. In some deltas, as that of Luamba and Kasoqui, morasses have been formed in which the matet and papyrus jungle is impenetrable. In the depths of them are quiet and deep pools, frequented by various aquatic birds, such as geese, ducks, snipes, widgeons, kingfishers and ibis, cranes and storks, and pelicans. To reach their haunts is, however, a work of great difficulty to the sportsmen in quest of game, a work often attended with great danger from the treacherous nature of these morasses, as well as from the dreadful attacks of fever which in these regions invariably follow wet feet and wet clothes. At Nyabigma we prepared, by distributing ten rounds of ammunition to each of our men, for a tussle with the Warundi of two stages ahead, should they invite it by a two-forward exhibition of their prejudice to strangers. At dawn of the fifth day we quitted the haven of Nyambigma Island, and in less than an hour had arrived off Cape Ketunda. This cape is a low platform of conglomerate sandstone, extending for about eight miles from the base of the great mountain curve which gives birth to the Luaba and its sister streams. Crossing the deep bay, at the head of which is the delta of the Luaba, we came to Cape Kasofu. Villagers are numerous in this vicinity. 
From hence we obtained a view of a series of points or capes, Kigongo, Katunga, and Bagaluka, all of which we passed before coming to a halt at the pretty position of Mukungu. At Mukungu we were stopped on the fifth day. We were asked for honga, or tribute. The cloth and beads upon which we substituted during our lake voyages were mine, but the doctor, being the elder of the two, more experienced, and the big man of the party, had the charge of satisfying all such demands. Many and many a time had I gone through the tedious and soul-wearing task of settling the honga, and I was quite curious to see how the great traveller would perform the work. The Mateko, a man inferior to a Mutwari, of Makunga, asked for two and a half dotai. This was the extent of the demand which he made known to us a little after dark. The doctor asked if nothing had been brought to us. He was answered no, it was too late to get anything now. But if we paid the honga, the Mateko would be ready to give us something when we came back. Livingston, upon hearing this, smiled, and the Mateko, being then and there in front of him, he said to him, Well, if you can't get us anything now, and intend to give us something when we return, then we had better keep the honga until then. The Mateka was rather taken aback at this, and demurred to any such proposition. Seeing that he was dissatisfied, we urged him to bring one sheep, one little sheep, for our stomachs were nearly empty, having been waiting for more than half a day for it. The appeal was successful, for the old man hastened and brought us a lamb in a three-gallon pot of sweet but strong zaga, or palm toddy, and in return the doctor gave him two and a half dotai of cloth. The lamb was killed, and our digestions being good, its flesh agreed with us, but, alas, for the effects of zaga, or palm toddy. Susie, the invaluable adjunct of Dr. Livingston, and Bombay, the headman of my caravan, were the two charged with watching the canoe, but having imbibed too freely of this intoxicating toddy, they slept heavily, and in the morning the doctor and I had to regret the loss of several valuable and indispensable things, among which may be mentioned the doctor's nine hundred fathom sounding line, five hundred rounds of pin rim, and central fire cartridges for my arms, and ninety musket bullets, also belonging to me. Besides these, which were indispensable in hostile Warundi, a large bag of flour and the doctor's entire stock of white sugar were stolen. This was the third time that my reliance in Bombay's trustworthiness resulted in a great loss to me, for the ninety-ninth time I had to regret bitterly having placed such entire confidence in Speck's loud commendation of him. It was only the natural cowardice of ignorant thieves that prevented the savages from taking the boat and its entire contents, together with Bombay and Susie as slaves. I can well imagine the joyful surprise which must have been called forth at the sight and exquisite taste of the doctor's sugar, and wonder with which they must have remarked the strange ammunition of Wasungu. It is to be sincerely hoped that they did not hurt themselves with the explosive bullets and rim cartridges through any ignorance of the nature of the deadly contents, in which ease the box and its contents would prove a very Pandora's casket. Much grieved at our loss, we set off on the sixth day at the usual hour on our watery journey. We coasted close to the several low headlands formed by the rivers Kigwena, Kikuma, and Kisunwe, and when any bay promised to be interesting, steered the canoe according to its indentations. While travelling on the water, each day brought forth similar scenes. On our right rose the mountains of Arundi, now and then disclosing the ravines through which the several rivers and streams issued into the great lake. At their base were the alluvial plains, where flourished the oil-palm and grateful plantain, while scores of villagers were grouped under their shade. Now and then we passed long narrow strips of pebbly or sandy beach, whereupon markets were improvised for selling fish, 
and the staple products of the respective communities. Then we passed broad swampy morasses formed by the numerous streams which the mountains discharged, where the matet and papyrus flourished. Now the mountains approached to the water, their sides descending abruptly to the water's edge. Then they receded into deep folds, at the base of which was sure to be seen an alluvial plain from one to eight miles broad. Almost constantly we observed canoes being plunged vigorously close to the surf, in fearless defiance of catastrophe, such as a capsize and gobbling up by voracious crocodiles. Sometimes we sighted a canoe a short distance ahead of us, whereupon our men, with song and chorus, would exert themselves to the utmost to overtake it. Upon observing our efforts, the natives would bend themselves to their tasks, and paddling, standing and stark naked, gave us ample opportunities for studying, at our leisure, comparative anatomy. Or we saw a group of fishermen, lazily reclining in purus natural lubus, on the beach, regarding with curious eye the canoes as they passed their neighborhood. Then we passed a flotilla of canoes, their owners sitting quietly in their huts, busily plying the rod and hook, or casting their nets, or a couple of men arranging their hook, or casting their nets, or a couple of men arranging their long drag nets close in shore for a haul, or children sporting fearlessly in the water with their mothers looking on approvingly from under the shade of a tree, from which I infer that there are not many crocodiles in the lake, except in the neighborhood of the large rivers. End of chapter 13, part 1